Welcome to another Financial Friday edition of the Barnhart Podcast. Today is Saturday, August 12th, 2017. This is episode 19. Welcome to Satoshi Saturday, and I'll explain that, na- that name a little bit later. Today, we are going to talk about cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin in particular. And even though it's the Barnhart Podcast, you're pretty much going to hear from Super Nerd for most of this hour. So, Anne, how are you doing this morning? And uh, is there an email you'd like to read? Yes, I'm I'm great. Um, and I super nerd told me to not do any pre-study. He didn't send me any show notes, nothing. He just wants me to to listen and heckle. And so that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm going to try to represent the listenership out there. And as we have, you know, super nerd and his nerdy expertise as a normal regular human being that is functional with computers and so forth, but doesn't have obviously the level of understanding of all this that guys like super nerd have. I, I hope that I'll be representing kind of everybody out there in the listening audience. And if I don't understand something or I don't understand what super nerds talking about, I'll jump in and say, Whoa, I, we don't get that. What, what does that mean? So that's going to be my role in all of this. And yeah, before we get started, um, one email that came in about the Financial Friday podcast that we did about, you know, seven-year mortgages and things like that. Um, and we did get some feedback from people saying, well, you know, this is completely unrealistic. That is completely unrealistic. One of the things that people said was unrealistic was a family living in a trailer or a mobile home. And sure enough, we got this really good email from a listener, which I think I will just go ahead and read. Anne, my wife stays at home. My kids are aged four, three, and two, and we just had another baby on Friday. We all live in a trailer. Sometimes I call it a mobile home. We paid off the trailer last year, 15 months after we bought it used for $33,000. We have no debt and are putting over one quarter of my salary into savings every month. We used to, in scare quotes, own a house. We had a 95% home mortgage loan amortized over 30 years, and the payment was almost one-third of my salary. I realized quickly that I was a slave, and one year after we bought the house, we put it up for sale. Then he goes on, he says something very nice. He says, I can't thank you enough for what you do. There's some things that a man can tell his wife a million times, but she won't believe it until it comes from another woman. There are so many told you moments when my wife and I listen to the podcast together. But of course, I try not to brag too much. And I do get a lot out of the podcast, too. I think that I I wanted to read that paragraph because I thought that was a really good point that sometimes women need to hear something from other women. And then um, he goes on, his final paragraph is, and a quick note to Super Nerd, thanks to you too for all the effort you put in. I gathered that you were a trad Catholic, but it wasn't till a few episodes in that I found out that you were born and raised trad Catholic. Your story about visiting a basilica and not realizing there was a Novus Ordo Mass going on because you had never been to one was very powerful. I've only fully tratted for a couple of years now, and your story will be helpful as I continue to try to explain the old mass to my parents. One can talk about how if a Catholic from the 
1940s were time warped to the present and shown a Novus Ordo mass, they wouldn't recognize it at all or more likely recognize it as a Protestant service. But to be able to talk about someone alive today being completely horrified when witnessing the Novus Ordo for the first time, that makes it more believable. God bless T. So that that's that was a really good email and uh, apropos to Financial Friday Saturday. Indeed. Another email feedback we got was talking about a suggestion for getting more fun from the podcast in half the time by listening at double speed, although there was the proviso that uh, except when Ann gets really excited about something or anytime super nerd talks because I talk too fast. And that's <laughs> going to be appropriate today. I've got seven hours or six, seven pages of notes that I uh, put together over uh, six hours that uh, aggregated, I don't know how many hours of watching YouTube videos and everything. So... I'm going to go really fast and try to get this all in an hour. And if I don't get it in an hour, we're going to have to do this in another show next Friday. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just messing with somebody who's listening at double speed. I'm going to slow down <laughs> as best I can and, and uh, go through this. But today we are talking about Bitcoin. And we have gotten several emails from people uh, first suggesting that we do a, sh a show on Bitcoin even before we started the Financial Fridays. And when I put out the request for people who have been investing in Bitcoin, just to get some input from them. How do they buy Bitcoin? How do they exchange it? What do they buy it for? Um, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, hey, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, watch this video, go to that website, which you know, I, I appreciate that. I've, I've found most of those websites and found a lot of those videos. Uh, some of them are, are pretty useful. Others, you know, Max Kaiser and Peter Schiff are going to argue about everything. So it doesn't matter if Bitcoin's the topic or if it's something else. But definitely a lot of research went into this. And I think this is going to end up being a multi-part uh, theme, I should say, not not necessarily a multi-part topic, uh, because uh, Bitcoin is just one of many cryptocurrencies. And so let, let's just dive into it and, and get into it a little bit. Okay. Uh, last week, uh, diving into it, let's, let's go back a minute. Last week, we, re we revisited um, the concepts of wealth and currency and talked about what a currency is. Uh, generally, that it's a, an accepted form of a generally accepted form of exchange, including coins, paper notes, electronic transfers issued by a government or central bank and circulated within an economy, and form the basis for units of accounting. Now, if you remember from last week, that's actually not what I said. It's, it, this is slightly different. Uh, I got some feedback from people saying that money and currency are the same thing, and pointing to um, economics dictionaries that pointed this out. So I went with a, a slightly different uh, definition because the point I'm getting at here is what is a currency, and I want to look at two aspects of what I just said here. Generally accepted. U.S. currency, for example. You can buy a soda at any vending machine in the United States with quarter-dollar coins issued by the U.S. Mint. Any properly configured machine will reject Canadian quarters or Euro quarters, regardless of whether or not you have enough currency of that type to buy your soda. It's, it's the principle of general acceptance here. U.S. cash is accepted in the United States. Electronic cash. And this gets in uh, heavily to the, the topic of electronic currencies. Do you know how much paper or coin currency there is for the overall money supply right now, Ann? Oh, it's not very much. It's in it's in the billions, isn't it? It's a few billion. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of, do you know what percentage of the overall money supply is actually in physical coins and paper? Oh, in physical coins and paper, what percentage? I would guess, oh, by now, with all of the financial products and so forth, 1%? Less than 
assuming Wikipedia is correct, and I don't know why I wouldn't assume that, uh, 10% <laughs> is what they say right now. 10%, uh, 10% okay. 10%, which if, I don't know if the numbers add up correctly, but uh, that would be $1.52 trillion of U.S. currency and cash and coin in circulation right now. Okay. So the idea all, of all over the world, uh, that's worldwide. true, all over, all over okay. the world, actual physical currency, which means that 90% of the money supply is just simply entries in a, in a computer somewhere. So right. $1.52 trillion in cash. Um, if we look at the U.S. corporations, according to a, a st uh, story in the New York Times, they have $1.9 trillion in cash on their balance sheet right now. So right there, you've got more cash on balance sheets than there is physical cash, cash in circulation. So right. I'm, 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 the reason I bring this up is that one of the arguments against uh, something like Bitcoin is that, well, why would you ever use a digital currency, something you can't hold in your hands like a U.S. dollar? Well, you know, in thinking about my own spending habits, about the only thing that I cannot pay other than in cash are babysitters and my son for mowing the lawn. And that's not. Be and in the case of the babysitters, I usually ask, hey, do you, do you take PayPal? Uh, the whole point is that cash is kind of inconvenient in a way. You've got to actually go to the bank and get these little pieces of paper and, and then actually keep them around. Um, most of I'm paid electronically by ACH. Uh, all my bills, like mortgages and car payments and things like that, all happen electronically. I almost never touch cash anymore. When I go to the store to buy groceries, we're swiping a card. Everything is happening electronically, which sets the stage for saying that something like Bitcoin would have the ability to, to take off because we're, we're doing everything electronically anyway. What are some of the other attributes of a currency? And again, we're doing a little bit of theory background here. Well, a currency should be portable, it should be stable, it should be durable, it should be divisible and transferable. Uh, it should be able to also function as a store of wealth. So I'd work for, you know, the, the example of somebody that you just read, somebody saving a quarter of their income every month. Well, you want to you be able to store that wealth somewhere. You could buy physical assets, um, cows, coins, gold, or just dollars in a, in a bank account. And you also need to have a unit of account. And this is where U.S. dollars are pretty handy. We can denominate pretty much anything in terms of dollars. How, how much is it going to cost me to get from Chicago to Baltimore? We can denominate, denominate that in dollars. How much is it going to cost to add, to your example a couple shows ago, how much is it going to cost to add one pound of, of beef to my cattle in, in the pen? You can denominate this all in dollars. So it's a unit of account. One of the biggest aspects in my mind to currency, though, is trust. Without trust, a currency is worthless. And there are a lot of people who will, will point out that the dollar is not worth the trust that's put into it right now. But the fact is, it is the, the world's reserve currency. Everything from oil to gold to any number of things are denominated in U.S. dollars. And until such a day as the dollar is not the benchmark for determining the, the price of commodities, uh, it will be a trusted uh, unit of account throughout the world. And this is also why, for example, the Russian currency hasn't hasn't taken off and doesn't have the the ability to compete against the US dollar in that way. Why up until now has there been really no competitive currency from Russia or from anywhere in the Islamic world or anywhere in Africa or even even anywhere in South America? Really, what what is the 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 other currency in the world that has any level of trust that is basically on par with the U.S. dollar is the British pound. And the reason that is, is because, as we talked about before, 
the people are the gold, the people are the money, the trustworthiness of the people, of the government, of whatever it is that's backing that money, that is what d- determines its its strength in this sense. And see, the everybody knows that the communists in Russia were all a bunch of damn criminals and liars. They knew that it wasn't a trustworthy paradigm. Everybody knows that Muslim culture, as we've discussed, is a, is a culture built on mendacity and lying and deception and so forth that's why no one will plow any amount of money any amount of wealth i should say into for example any sort of a currency in the middle east because nobody trusts that they they don't trust what's backing it they don't trust the people that are behind it and this is this is an incredibly important concept and that's why as the culture degrades the morality of the american culture degrades and the the morality of british culture to some extent also western european cultures um it is the the notion of personal morality is tied directly to monetary theory because macro macro morality concepts with regards to a given nation or culture or or whatever it is that you're talking about in this case obviously we're talking about entire nations that is that is the metric that determines the the strength and trustworthiness, the viability, the desirability of the currency. And so as the U.S. just swirls around the toilet bowl and goes down the tube in the U.K. the same and so on and so forth, th- this absolutely implies and leads to the thought of economic instability. Economic instability is 100% directly tied to morality. And so... That's why in my writings and in my oeuvre, it's, it's, you know, talking about, as Super Nerd and I refer to it as churchy stuff. Okay, there's all this writing going on about churchy stuff and morality and the divine law, the natural law, et cetera, et cetera. And people think that, that this has nothing to do with finance and I don't want to hear, hear about any of this because it's a completely separate topic. It isn't. The two are just woven together inextricably these these two concepts the money is derivative of the morality and so i just wanted to make that point well that that's perfectly timed as well in in terms of of what you trust why is the dollar still uh, the, the international reserve currency, you, you could go down the conspiracy theory route that uh, some of the, the nations we've toppled in the war on terror were because they were going to come out with a gold-backed, petro-backed uh, unit of currency, which could uh, compete with the dollar. But let's save that for another show. Mm. So enough of the, the theory about what a currency is. Let's talk about Bitcoin. What exactly is Bitcoin? And here's where we run into one of the first problems in trying to understand this. If you ask 10 Bitcoin enthusiasts what Bitcoin is, you'll probably get about 11 answers. Mm. And if you ask mm. a, an economist, you're going to get a very different kind of answer. If you ask a lawyer, you'll get a very different kind of answer. If you ask a computer scientist, you're going to get a very different kind of answer. Let's let's uh, go with the definition right on the Bitcoin.org website. Bitcoin is a consensus network that enables a new payment system and a completely digital currency. What is a consensus network? See, is this is this just BS or does that actually mean something in like computer parlance? It both. Um, well, no, I mean, it, it's it, it means something in computer parlance, and and this is something where 
the first time you read this, if you've never understood or, or done any study of what really is Bitcoin and how does it work, that is a meaningless sentence. And then once you study it, you come back and you look at the definition again. It's like, oh, okay. Now that I know a little bit more about this blockchain thing, I understand what consensus is all about. And mm -hmm. we'll, we'll unpack this as, as we go. Uh, okay. but I'm just reading the, the definition now. I mean, the, the whole point is if you're confused by that sentence and it didn't mean anything to you, um, you're in good company. Mm. Bitcoin is the first decentralized peer-to-peer -peer payment network that is powered by its users with no central authority or middlemen. Bitcoin can also be seen as the most prominent triple entry bookkeeping system in existence. And that's a phrase that threw me immediately, triple entry. I've heard of double entry before. And what the reference to the triple party is here is that there are three parties to a Bitcoin transaction. There's the party of the first part who's selling whatever the good or service is. There's the party of the second part who's buying the good and service in exchange for the Bitcoin. And the third party is that global consensus network, which is recording the transaction in the ledger, which we call the blockchain. We'll get to that a little bit later. Okay, now here's a question. This sounds very much like um, exchanges, financial exchanges, commodity exchanges. Um, there's there's three parties to every transaction. There's the person on the buy side, the person on the sell side, and then the exchange stands in the middle as the not just the the clearer that they clear and they do all the bookkeeping and all the accounting and everything, but they also stand in the middle as or they were supposed to until MF Global as the universal guarantor. So you didn't have to worry about the creditworthiness of, of the of your counterparty, whoever was on the other side of, of you. If you're the buyer, you don't have to worry about the creditworthiness of the seller. If you're the seller, you don't have to get care about the creditworthiness of the buyer because the exchange stands in the middle as a universal guarantor. Is is that kind of, or, or does Bitcoin have any notion of universal guarantor as the consensus network itself? Or is that kind of what, what we're getting at? Let me, let me ask you a question to make sure I understand and phrase this correctly. In the scenario you laid out, the role of the exchange is to make sure that the buyer really has the asset for for purchasing whatever's being purchased and ensures that the seller is made whole. Is that correct? Well, the 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 exchange stands in the middle so that you're never actually the buyer is never actually doing a direct transaction with the seller and vice versa. It, it enables every, trust every, when the buyer and seller didn't know who they are. Well, they, they don't. You never do. You, In fact, there's there's an anonymity there. There's supposed to be an, an anonymity there. The the trades are getting executed, but it's it's the exchange that stands in the middle. So when, you know, my clients, they have all these positions on and the market moves against them and they get a margin call, they send money to to the brokerage house, which then is, you know, basically working working in tandem with the exchange you a uh, uh, you know farmer smith who let's say is a buyer would never ever ever have any transaction any financial dealings directly with farmer jones who's on the other side of his position there's there's no touching there's no interaction there it's the exchange that stands in the middle of everything long is, story is that, short i'm going to say yes Okay, okay. Because they, as I understand it, one of the principal functions of the exchange is to, to, is to provide trust in a situation where the parties have never seen each other and have no reason in the world to trust each other. Right, yes. So because in, the in that exchange sense, is the universal counterparty, yes. In that sense, yes. 
And that's because okay. there doesn't need to be a counterparty in, in this case. Uh, in, in the case of a Bitcoin transaction, you have an asset which is publicly provable beforehand. Uh, on the party, the first part, they say, I've got one Bitcoin in order to buy your whatever, now truckload of watermelons. Uh, mm -hmm. That the fact that I have a Bitcoin can be proven. You don't have to know who I am as long as I I, I can show with with my by, by signing a message. And we'll get into this later. The point is yes. Okay, gotcha. Another definite another way of describing Bitcoin, and this I, I took this from a uh, Tim Ferriss podcast uh, episode with uh, somebody named Nick Zabo, who is a a polymath of of all kinds of interesting disciplines. He has a a JD and a uh, computer science degree, so he's uniquely suited to be able to talk about things like this. And he also gave one of the most simple definitions in terms of if you are technically inclined and, and you understand the idea of a digital currency, you understand what cryptography is, but you still wonder how in the world does this really work? There are three parts to Bitcoin. And unfortunately, some of the names are, are duplicated, so uh, there, there gets to be some confusion. There are three essential parts. There's the Bitcoin wallet. That's the so It's a computer program you run on, on your computer that allows you to see all the Bitcoin addresses that where Bitcoin has been sent to you. And it's a way to see what, what's my balance at this point in time. There are applications called, uh, or I should, I should say compute nodes called miners, uh, like mining for gold. And these are uh, large, powerful computational engines that are solving complex mathematical problems. And the whole point of, of what they're doing here is, is taking the transactions that are happening through the Bitcoin network and encrypting them in such a way uh, that when they're added to the ledger, uh, and the, the process that they're, they're doing here is computing a block cycle. When they add that block cycle to the ledger, it's done. What's in, a block cycle? I don't, it, we a, don't know what that is. It, it's, a, it's a unit of work on the ledger. So all the computers that are, are receiving information about transactions that are happening are applying a cryptographic algorithm to the transactions coming in and then computing this into a, it's a unit of work, like a page in, in a ledger. They just call it a block cycle in this case. Okay. And the way you can prove the integrity of this block cycle is that in addition to known cryptographic functions that are published in open source, you can inspect this if you're sufficiently into computer science and mathematics. Uh, in addition to that computer algorithm, it's also uh, attributes of all of the blocks that came before it, all the pages in the ledger. So that when you add a new page or a new block to the ledger, to the chain, the blockchain is how they, that, that name comes around. It's Think of it like pages in a ledger. But when you add a new blockchain, it's not just making a cryptographic hash of uh, or representation of the, of, of the transactions that just went through, but it's also taking attributes of all the blocks that came before it, which is why uh, the computer hardware for calculating these is pretty intense stuff. I mean, the, 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 the kind of hardware you would need to do this kind of uh, calculation is... is um, about $2,000, and it's going to consume quite a bit of electricity. Um, but the point is that you look at the, the contents of any block, and it has the property of immutability, because once this is written, the amount of calculations you would have to do to go back and either remove or edit something in the blockchain is so complex, because not only would you have to edit that block and recompute its hash to come out the same as what it was, but then you also would have to recompute all following pages in the ledger or blocks in the, in the chain. And the amount of time it would take to do that is so huge, and the amount of time it would take that by the time you could come up with, I don't know, go, going back 10 blocks, altering something, and, and recomputing the next 10 blocks so nobody could tell, a thousand more blocks have been added to the blockchain. So somebody like John Corzine, who wants to go back and change the ledger at MF Global, if it was recorded in a blockchain, couldn't do it. I don't care how many brainiacs you get from MIT and Caltech and wherever else they make good computer scientists. 
you're not going to be able to do this because the the mathematics for computing these these calculations and the hardware on which it runs today, it would take a thousand years to recompute some of these things. By which point, it you're already dead. So that there's when when you you can't make absolute statements like it is impossible to forge the blockchain. Um, maybe somebody will come up with a quantum computer who, that that would make all known uh, encryption impossible or, or or instantly breakable. Um, with a breakthrough like that, yes, maybe maybe the blockchain could be forged. Uh, but with known technology and hardware, it can't be done. Okay, so now I'm gonna I'm going to heckle you. Um, what happens when there's no electricity? Um, the blockchain stops. And then when the, the, electric- whole, the whole thing stops, I mean, this, I mean, it, it, I understand what you're saying about blockchains and the immutability of it, but it also, it smacks, the whole thing smacks to me of just being incredibly fragile in the sense that if, <laughs> if there's no electricity and there's no internet or just no internet, maybe there's still electricity, but there's no internet for whatever reason, just all of this just ceases to exist it ceases to exist it ceases to be you can't do anything so i i this is what i keep coming back to and this is this is just the the big heckle you know what happens when the electricity goes out the same thing as what would happen if we didn't have bitcoin this is why i mentioned at the beginning 90 percent of the u.s money supply and i don't know what percentage of the rest of the world is electronic right. it's not in paper right. so if we lost communication capability and electricity today it would be no difference between whether or not we're on electronic dollars or Bitcoin. We're going to, one of the big differences is once the networks come back up and the electricity comes back up, the question of who has an accurate ledger in the case of Chase Bank or the Federal Reserve, can you be sure that they didn't change their ledgers? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big differences between Bitcoin and a centralized mm, system I like see, we have yeah. now. The case of, of, the, of the miners, that, that log that they're putting down which is Wait, called, what's a miner? What's a miner? It, it's it, the, the it's nicknamed a, a miner in the same sense that you're mining for gold. You're mining for Bitcoin. It, it's it, a better way of saying it. The the log keepers, the bookkeepers, the software that that adds the new uh, compute blocks to the chain. That is the, the pages in, in the ledger. These are typically referred to as miners because in 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 compensation for all of the electricity uh, being expended and the access to high-speed internet and the cost of the hardware up front, for computing these these uh, ledger pages, they get paid in Bitcoin. Right now, for a compute block, 12.5 Bitcoins are issued globally for every block cycle. And the amount of computation that goes into it is so big that it's not going to any one person. If, if you're part of a compute cluster, then you're getting a very tiny fraction. Um, I mentioned some of the, the costs of the computer hardware. There's There was a $2,000 machine I was looking at yesterday, uh, not to buy, just looking at, at, at hardware. They say that uh, at current um, current capacity on, on the global network, probably 0.3 Bitcoins per month you might be able to make on this. And that assumes you hmm. have electricity and assumes that you have uh, high-speed internet and all the rest, which as the price of Bitcoin goes up, that might oh, actually yeah. be what a decent Oh, yeah, what is the investment. price of Bitcoin? Uh, what curr- is it in dollars? Currently, it is at $3,800 per Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. so you said 0.3 Bitcoins per month. So that's, you know, 1000 1200 bucks a month. It is. And yeah. we'll get back to the, we'll, we'll talk more about the valuation of Bitcoin later and, and, and um, how this gets into the one of the attributes of currency, stability, or lack thereof, um, before long. So I, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned the 
one of the essential pieces of Bitcoin is the wallet, which anybody can have on their computer. I've got one on my computer, even though I don't have any Bitcoin because nobody's donated any to me. I'm not not complaining. I'm just I, I downloaded this mainly just to see what was how long this would take, etc. So I have the entire 149 gigabyte blockchain on my computer. Now, I'm not a cryptographer. I can't make a lot of sense of this. But in terms of being able to see, do I have any any Bitcoin, you kind of have to have the whole ledger. Well, this also means that let's say we had a, a one of your nice scenarios. Let's say we had a big EMP attack. And five mm-hmm. minutes before the EMP attack, I unplug my laptop and put it in a Faraday cage for no good reason. And the entire Bitcoin ledger throughout the world, 98% of it's gone because the hardware on which it was sitting was destroyed um, or atomized, as the case may be, that it's simply gone. Well, mm-hmm. so we, we talk about this scenario. If, if we lost electricity and communication, what would happen to all of our Federal Reserve points? I mean, U.S. dollars. Well, we have to rely that somebody is being truthful when, when the system comes back online and they say that there are, I don't know, $15 trillion in circulation. Mm-hmm. Well, what if in the case of Bitcoin, five people come back and they all have this cryptographically proven ledger since the beginning of Bitcoin time, minus five minutes before the EMPs went off. And the, the ledgers all agree. And we can show through mathematics and encryption that they're accurate. They all, they're all are the same. From that beginning, we can now repopulate out the ledger around the world. And this, mm-hmm. is, this is one of the inherent natures of a distributed global database. And there are this is well known within computer science to have uh, something distributed around peer-to-peer networks do this a lot. If you remember Napster back in the day or yes. any kind of file mm-hmm. trading, you have a decentralized system where the peers are directly communicating with each other. Uh, in the case of uh, Napster, it was pirated Metallica songs. In the case of mm-hmm. Bitcoin, what you're transmitting around is the copy of the ledger around the world. And why this gets to be important is, is that if... Somebody, let's say, let's use our John Corzine example. Let's say he gets a couple of brainiacs and they want to try to go and, and tamper with the ledger and they figure out how to do it. And they start publishing out to the, the global ledger something that's different. Well, now this is where the, con- the global consensus network comes into play. The nodes compare what they see on, on the ledgers coming from, from other nodes on the network. And they, they look at what John Corzine's people are putting out and they say, what you have doesn't match. And you're the only one saying that your version of the blockchain is correct. And we've got 99.9% of the rest of the people saying that's not correct. So mm-hmm. we're going to disregard your, 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 in, your interest here or your, your entries because it doesn't, there, there's no consensus uh, mm-hmm. with what you're saying. In terms of nodes on the network, I'm looking right now in real time. There are 5,752 nodes on the network, and my machine's probably one of them. So there are 5,700 nodes that have the full ledger. So if John Corzine manages to get 100 full nodes online trying to put fake le- fake um, transactions out on the ledger, what's that to 5,000? Not a lot. So the, the, the ability to pollute the ledger is small right now. And that that's actually one of the problems of Bitcoin that I'll address later is, is the way the ledger grows. Um, it, it's susceptible to something called a 51% attack because you have to have that consensus to, to say what the future of Bitcoin is. The past is immutable. You can't change that. That's cryptographically provable. You can't change it. But what happens in the future? If you get 51% colluding, you can do some interesting things. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Mm, interesting. Okay. Okay. So I mentioned the, the, the Bitcoin wallet. I mentioned the bookkeepers, also miners. And then throughout this whole thing, I've been talking about something called the blockchain. That is the crypt- cryptographically calculated public distributed database ledger, the transaction history of Bitcoin. And 
like I said, you can't make an absolute statement, but it's pretty much immutable. Uh, it, it would take technologies and mathematics that we don't know about yet, um, or an angelic intellect directly inter intervening, which I don't know, it, it could happen. <laughs> mm -hmm, but yeah. the, like, the likelihood is is pretty low. So how is a transaction recorded? I kind of started talking about this already. Somebody like John Corzine, let's, let's assume, let's, let's take John Corzine out of this. Um, when I send or receive a Bitcoin transaction, I send information about that transaction to all the nodes on the network to which I'm connected, which if I look right now on my computer, I am connected to eight different uh, nodes on the Bitcoin network. And I would assume that at least eight of those or each of those are, are connected to probably six to eight nodes themselves. And you can see how the network effect uh, snowballs real quick. I send out a, a notification that I'm going to send 0.000257 Bitcoin to this particular address somewhere in the world. Uh, I send that information out to the eight nodes to whom I'm connected. They turn around and send it to the, all the nodes to whom they're connected, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is where you start to get the consensus ability. The, the, the transmission of this happens very quickly. So the ability to generate consensus within the, the block cycle time, which is about 10 minutes, is easily doable. Now, the exact details of how that works is beyond my understanding that that gets into cryptography and that's a level of math I never covered in, in college. But the point is that when I send information onto the blockchain that I'm sending a Bitcoin payment to somebody, this is going out to the, the network. It's going out to all the peers to whom I'm connected and then they turn around and send it out to all the peers to whom they're connected and vice mm -hmm. versa. Somebody on the network to whom I'm connected uh, sends me information about a transaction. I'm going to turn around and, and send that back out. And I've got a, a copy of, of the transaction at this point that, that uh, in case there's ever a dispute, I can, com I can contribute my copy of the ledger uh, as part of the dispute resolution so that we can reach a network consensus. Okay, now let me ask a dumb layman question. It seems to me that, you know, Bitcoin right now is a very, very small, teeny tiny market, uh, little corner of the, of the world economy. What happens if... Um, not only as time continues to pass and there's more and more and more and more data, but as it, let's assume that the entire global economy basically transferred over to this, aren't we talking about amounts of information that just become so unwieldy or, or is, or am I just being dumb and there's just, you know, we have, we have the capacity to build an almost infinite amount of of data storage capacity. It's a little you bit. See of, what I'm saying? It's a little bit of both. If if everybody adopted Bitcoin right now and all transactions in dollars, euros, yens, and whatever else exists, if all of that stopped and we tried to do it in Bitcoin, yes, the Bitcoin network would crash almost immediately because the ability to record that many transactions, um, it, it's not possible. And I'll get to that in a little bit later because there, there, I, I do have a section on what's the what's the problem with Bitcoin. Okay. Um, well, we, I guess we could address some of that now. Part of, part of the problem is the transaction throughput. Right now, the global network bogs down once you go past six transactions per second. Okay, six transactions per second. That's not a lot. If no, you're doing, it isn't. If you're, doing transfers, <laughs> if you're doing transfers between central banks, that's probably doable. If you're buying Starbucks, uh, if you're buying Starbucks, the company, that that's a big transaction, no big, no problem. It's probably fine to wait an hour to get full, full fidelity confidence that the transaction is is properly recorded in the blockchain, no problem. If you're trying to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, the idea of waiting for an hour is not feasible. Now, what does that mean for the future? You could have two tier 
uh, systems where Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency in the same sense that uh, the central banks all trade gigantic blocks of gold, uh, or at least they used to, as, as a way of settling accounts between central banks. And those transactions don't take place very often. So in a situation where uh, six transactions a second is your limit, then that would probably be okay if, if Bitcoin becomes the currency exchanged between central banks or, or large commercial banks. But if you're talking about typical consumer transactions here in the United States, just the Visa card network alone averages 3,000 transactions a second. And on Black Friday, it's not unusual for them to top 30,000 transactions a second. That's just, yeah. that's just one uh, credit network. There's um, Diners Club, there's MasterCard, there's American Express, and there's probably Chase has their own. Um, so the ability to handle a lot of transactions per second, that's a problem that Bitcoin faces at the moment. Now, this gives rise to something called altcoins or alternative uh, coins, and there are literally thousands of those. And basically, if you if you look at all of the attributes that go into building a cryptocurrency, the the computational algorithms that go into proving a transaction, the size of the blocks or the size of the pages on the ledger, uh, the larger the blocks, the, the more transaction throughput you can do per, per second. I don't know why. I just know that's the case. Um, again, this is a, a, a level of mathematics and computer science beyond which I studied. Um, if you take all of these different attributes about, about a, a cryptocurrency and just start changing them out, you can see how you very quickly you can come up with hundreds or thousands of variations of all of these properties based on, you know, we want to optimize this for transaction speed, or we want to optimize this for um, integrity, that there's no way to, to fudge the record on this. Or maybe we want to optimize this for the blockchain itself, uh, that, that um, for the computation that can take place at that point. And that's something, if we have time, we want to get to. And that's certainly a topic that we're not going to explore in detail today. But that, I think that is the most exciting potential of, of cryptocurrencies. is isn't the currency aspect, it's actually the blockchain. But I think a, a, a relevant sidebar we kind of need to take at this point is, where did the internet come from? And th this is key to your point. What if we lost the internet? What if we lost electricity? What if, what if something bad happened? Well, August 29th, 1949, everybody certainly remembers this, the United States, or the United States, the Soviet Union conducted their first successful test of a nuclear weapon. It didn't take long for the war planners at the five-sided puzzle palace in Washington to come to the conclusion that eh, the next war, if we have a war with Russia, it's going to be nuclear. And an essential element of any war is communicating instructions, either intelligence or orders. We have to be able to communicate during war. If you can't communicate, um, you're easy pickings for destruction. So the Defense Department issued a directive through its Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, and they said, build us a communication system that is impervious to a nuclear attack. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. And the project that resulted from that was called ARPANET. And ARPANET went online July 20th, 1969. I'm sorry, um, October 29th, 1969. Jul July 20th, 1969 was Neil Armstrong working, walking on the moon. The point I was getting mm -hmm. at is a lot was happening in that year. Uh, the space age, the space race was definitely, uh, you, you could look at that in, in terms of exploration and, and uh, advancing humanity. Or you could look at it as advances in, in intercontinental ballistic missiles, which probably was a bigger reason why NASA had the funding it did. Uh, so 1969, a lot of research and a lot of money is being poured into technologies of dual use. Um, certainly something that could help us win the next war or something that could be used for, for things we can't imagine yet, like cryptocurrencies eventually. 
at the beginning, uh, the Defense Department was working with research agencies at different universities. So the first four nodes that went online were UCLA, Stanford, UC Santa Barbara, U- University of Utah. And the point of, of, of having these researchers at these universities was they had to figure out what kind of technologies would be able to support the ability of, a, of huge sections or the majority of a network being wiped out. How can the communication still take place reliably? And that's where the, the big inventions of the Internet Protocol Suite came out. The essential aspect here is that um, internet communications or the internet protocol, uh, TCP IP, one of the pillars of this is something called dynamic rerouting. If you have 80% of your network destroyed, uh, whether it's because uh, a bomb went off or somebody lost electricity or a telecommunications switch is flooded or squirrels chewed through a fiber optic network, it doesn't really matter what caused the network to go down. What we need is the ability to dynamically get the links back up and route around that problem and get the messages through. And that's what uh, one of the key discoveries or one of the key inventions for the internet technology suite achieves. So if you have, uh, let's say the Verizon network, you want to make a call from uh, or make communication from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and that fiber optic line goes down. The network itself can see that the line goes down and route through Baltimore and then down to Washington, D.C. Now, some of this stuff is pre-programmed that if, if a route goes down, it, it already has backup routes laid in. It could be something as uh, as advanced as you, you mentioned in a previous podcast. You really like the um, doing doing maze puzzles, being able to find mm-hmm. the connection from point A to point B. Um, one of them will work at least, and that's the idea of Internet Protocol. Now, there's an, an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true. I'd like to believe that it is. That uh, the, the the first real world test of this was in the first Gulf War. The United States literally destroyed, or literally figuratively, they, they just took out upwards of 90% of the Iraqi government's ability to communicate. And so in some cases, they were complete breaks from north to south. Uh, we went and blew up sections of fiber optic cable or took over the switching stations and turned them off, whatever the case may be. But they still got messages through. They just weren't going directly. Uh, the generals in the Pentagon didn't like this, but the researchers at MIT and, and Caltech and other places threw a party because, hey, we just saw our invention work in, for real. In the, in the scenarios for which it was created, which the point of, of making this sidebar is that the data transmission technology on which Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies are based, it's robust, it's reliable, and it was specifically designed to withstand network outages, either in part or in whole. Well, I mean, if it's a whole network, obviously that, that won't work. But once the network comes back, any queued messages will get sent through. So that hmm. that's one of the things that and I take that sidebar because you, you've asked several times, well, what about if the network goes out? What if the internet goes out? Um, yeah, if the, if the electricity goes out, obviously the internet can't work without electricity, not very well anyway. Um, once the electricity comes back on, the, the nature of the network is to self-heal and to, to build up its, its route tables again and be able to transmit messages. So well, in- the question is, is has enough time? Um, I, it would seem to me that nefarious actors or, or whatever if they wanted to, you know, for example, destroy a certain group of people, what they would have to do is turn the internet off and then have it make sure that it remains off for a sufficiently long period of time. And let's let's go into the future and let's say that that all money is now crypto and all money is internet based essentially. Um, I guess you would just have to wait a sufficiently long period of time for the entire economy to collapse and for the people to uh, essentially what starve to death you know either they starve to death or they're going to have to revert back 
to conventional conventional money. Oh, to a barter economy, yes. If you interrupt, yeah. if you interrupt the ability to do electronic uh, tra- uh, transactions, I mean, that's the case right now. Ninety percent of all cash is digital right now. If mm-hmm. we had a United States wide uh, communications outage, whether it's an EMP or somebody forgot to pay the electric bill or whatever, if we had a communications outage, it would probably take three days before there's riots in the streets, and that's being generous. Right. At which point, even when the communications are turned back on, is our highest priority getting blockchains resynchronized or uh, remittances solved, or is a higher problem putting down riots? Right. So there, there is that practical aspect, but it's not unique to Bitcoin. Now, what Bitcoin would allow you to do in that situation, like I said before, if you have a communication outage of, let's say, 33 days, once everything, once, once communication is restored, even if 90% of the ledgers were wiped out in the process, that 10% can repopulate out to the network and rebuild the ledger, and we're back to where we were when, when the communications went out. Mm-hmm. What if the Federal Reserve and its master ledgers were, were right over ground zero for one of the attacks? What if Wall Street was the second primary target? How are we going to rebuild the ledgers for the U.S. economy at this point? Who's got copies of them? Okay, maybe mm-hmm. NORAD's got a copy in, in Colorado, but the Chinese knew that, and they're burrowing it to take over that, too. Mm-hmm. The point is that right now with a centralized system, uh, it's difficult. It's, it's not as easy to be able to repopulate your ledger. And secondly, while it's offline, how do we know what's the integrity check to make sure it wasn't edited? In the, in the case of a cryptographic ledger, you can see that somebody tried to go back and change something a thousand blocks back. And now we have a cascading um, disagreement in, in the ledger from the Corzine ledger versus everything else in the world. So we're not mm. going to disregard Corzine because we... The math says your your ledger's wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's. But then this goes back to the point you were, you made about a fifty one percent conspiracy could then be hatched and leveraged. Well, that if if fifty one percent of the people colluded, they could change I'd, the future entries in the in the ledger. So, for example, if if Corzine managed to get together fifty one percent of of the network, and I'm just picking on Corzine because he's a known uh, deviant deviant when it comes to financial practices. Mm-hmm. In the future, he could he could buy, I don't know, 10 Bitcoin and then spend them multiple times because he would control the ability to, uh, he would control the consensus at that point. You know, he, he could keep saying, nope, I didn't, send, I didn't spend this Bitcoin again. I'm sending it to you. I'm sending it to you too. And, I'm, and you know, everybody gets this Bitcoin. You know, the, the Oprah applied to John Corzine Economics. And because mm. if he has, if he can, if he can control the consensus, and I apologize for getting speaking too fast here. Uh, if he can control the consensus, then what happens in the future going forward can be altered. But going back to change the ledger, again, you've got 100,000 years of mathematics run on computers to be able to do that. Um, is he really going to make that time investment? And would it matter? No. But he could, He could. if you're, let's, let's take the George Soros example. Um, he might be able to short Bitcoin and then mount an attack or say he's going to, and that would erode the trust any trust that, that there would be in Bitcoin. And, you know, a, a currency is only as good as people believe it to be. Yeah. One of the advantages of gold, to the extent that gold makes a decent currency, is that there is supposedly inherent worth in the coins themselves. Yes. Well, you can't eat gold. I guess if if uh, jewelry is that big of a deal, yeah, you could always take those those gold coins and make jewelry out of them. But why, were, why was uh, currency made from gold or silver in the first place? Because it was expensive enough to get the materials in question to make the coins, that to forge coins is to make real coins. 
In other words, right. if somebody gave you a gold coin, it's legitimate. If the typical test, you bite it to see if, it, if it's a soft metal like gold really is. Mm-hmm. Then it's gold. I'll accept it. I don't care if this was something that came out of the bank that was officially minted or if it was something that you made the, the, made the pattern to look exactly like a minted coin and you just discovered the gold out in California in some stream in the mountain and you made your own coins. It's still gold. It's, it's the same. Now, if somebody came up with some process of alchemy where they could just start making gold out of common materials, that becomes a problem now because you have a, a functional um, forgery or, or um, what's the right word for this? Where you, where you make fake money. Uh, Counterfeit. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm thinking of all the crypto stuff and I couldn't, couldn't remember that <laughs> one. So essentially you can come up with counterfeit currency. When, when the currency itself is based on a mathematical cryptographic algorithm, making counterfeits is kind of difficult. In fact, it's impossible with the known technology and, and mathematics. So I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent here based on, based on your question. But the point is that, you know, in terms of what you're trusting, you can trust that five people don't have the same Bitcoin, that five people can't, that somebody can't spend the same Bitcoin five times unless you control the consensus on the network. But even then, that's something where um, you can see how many uh, full nodes there are on the, on, the, on the network at any given time. And you can see whether or not somebody is going to approach 51%. Um, and we'll get back to that a little bit, a little bit later. So we talked a little bit about internet, um, the, the, the communication backbone on which uh, Bitcoin operates. How about a few stats on Bitcoin? Right now, there's about 16.2 million Bitcoins on the blockchain. Um, I mentioned that every compute cycle, which is about every 10 minutes or so, uh, 12.5 Bitcoins, at least right now, are being issued. Uh, the mathematical algorithm of how those Bitcoins are issued uh, cuts in half every so many years. By 2020, that will have dropped to 6.25 Bitcoins per compute cycle. And then by 2140, no more Bitcoins are going to be issued. It'll be done at that point. Says who? That's the mathematical algorithm, the way it's written. And Bitcoin, I mentioned that it's computer software. You can go look at the source code and see that the, the algorithms and how the, the grants of Bitcoin for adding to the ledger, uh, how, that, how that's done. And you can see that the, the reducing algorithm tails down to zero by the year 2140. But that's, that's, that's an arbitrary function, it seems to me. Shouldn't, shouldn't the money supply be a function of the population, the, the productivity of the economy, so on and so forth? Isn't that why, why we, we have expanding and contracting money supplies? And, and ideally, money supply should continue to should continue to expand because, you know, in a normal, sane, moral society, people multiply and have multiple children, and the birth rate is well above 2.1. And so as the population grows, the, mon- the, the money supply should also grow to pace that, shouldn't it? Well, now you're asking a question of economic theory. Yeah. And, and that's, that's certainly a valid point to raise. Um, what One of the problems, you know, whether or not it's a real problem or a perceived problem that Bitcoin addresses is that no central agency can just decide to print more currency. That the growth of, of the currency is regulated by a mathematical algorithm that drops to zero by the year 2140. What it's aiming to avoid is inflation. Now, mm-hmm. is this a bad thing? Well, you have a you have a inherently deflationary currency. So if you, you know, if you have a Bitcoin today, and if this is a currency that's really going to be adopted in the future, then in theory, that Bitcoin is going to continue to have growing purchasing ability as it goes on. Uh, mm-hmm. In likelihood, that would probably be an asset that actually backs up something else. So we mentioned the idea of, of having 
uh, transaction throughput, like on the Visa network, it's possible that you'll have Visa points or something. So we, when you go to the store to buy milk and bread or whatnot, it'll require so many Visa points in order to purchase or whatever the other unit of, of measure is. And those Visa points would then be backed, whether cryptographically or we just have to trust the Visa network backed by Bitcoin because the Bitcoin network couldn't do the transactions. But in terms of how the money supply grows, I, that's that's a question of economic theory, not not mathematics and computer science. It's valid. You know, whether or not the, the, the money supply should grow in proportion to the population, to all the goods and services, all the real property, probably, because otherwise uh, you're going to have a, the problem of inflation or deflation. And Bitcoin does not address that. They simply say uh, the growth of the currency is a descending, I don't know if it's a descending logarithmic or whatever the, the proper math term is, but it's going to drop to zero by 2140. And what happens mm -hmm. after that? Don't know. I won't be here to see it. But the idea being, you're not going to have a situation where the Fed can just decide to miracle into existence $17 trillion and all of a sudden the, the buying power of a dollar just got cut in half and there was nothing you could do about that. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what the motivation behind the limited issuance of Bitcoin is. Certainly, certainly. So that gets into another question. Who controls Bitcoin? Um, nobody. It's decentralized. Uh, in the software that regulates how it operates is all, like I said, it's all open source. This is a computer program. And if you are sufficiently skilled, you can read the, the source code and, and um, understand it. And because it's computer program or computer software, you can change it in the future, which is something, again, if we get time, we'll talk about this when we get to the end. Um, and we mentioned the 51% theory. If enough people colluded to control how they were going to treat the blockchain going forward, then you could have situations of double spending or multiple spending or a corrupted ledger going forward, but going backwards to change it, not really feasible because of the cryptographic nature and the integrity that that implies. So how does one acquire Bitcoin? Uh, you can either do this through direct transfer or what we, refer to, what we refer to earlier as mining. So direct transfer, this is exchange for goods and services. So I buy uh, one hamburger and I pay two milli bitcoins for it, two one, two one thousandths of a bitcoin. Or I trade uh, 0.8 bitcoins for two pounds of marijuana, just a Colorado example. Uh, or I could do it in, in person for cash. So I, I meet somebody who has bitcoin. I can I can uh, verify that they have bitcoin by looking at my copy of the blockchain and said, yep, you've got, I don't know, 14 bitcoins. I want to buy one from you and I'm going to give you cash for it. We can completely come up with our own valuation on the spot, say that uh, I'm going to pay you $5 for, per Bitcoin. Great deal if you can get it. But the point Okay, is here's a question. Here's a layman's question. Um, are people's names, how, how are people identified? Are people given code numbers or is it their name? What's the identification process? It is a an address, which is, um, I don't know if it's a 32 character uh, value, but it, it is a, think of it like an email address. But mm -hmm. unlike an email address, which is typically tied to your name, for example, um, you have Anne at barnhart.biz. Uh, that's kind of mm -hmm. obvious from looking at the email address, who is behind that email address. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if you have, I don't know, turbonerd22 at yahoo.com, mm -hmm. that could be super nerd making up a similar name, or it could be somebody totally different. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can come up with a big string of numbers and letters at whatever domain.com. So. Mm -hmm. The point is that the, the addresses themselves don't have any identifying information with them. Okay. So how do you prove who's who? I'll get, I'll get yeah. to that in a minute. Okay. 
Um, the other way to, to that you could buy Bitcoin is on an exchange. So, for example, Coinbase.com is one that I'm, of which I'm aware. There are probably lots of them online. And this is just a way to exchange U.S. dollars online for cryptocurrency. Or you can, like I said earlier, you can earn Bitcoins through competitive mining. That's putting down the, the, the ledgers on, uh, or the, the new pages on the ledger. And in exchange for spending all the money you did on the hardware and the electricity and everything else, you are paid in Bitcoin. So how would I use Bitcoin? This is the area where, as an application programmer, I, I can understand how it would work. But in, in terms of um, how it really would practically work, I'm not 100% sure. But um, in essence, you would transmit you know, so many Bitcoins from your wallet to a Bitcoin address on the other end. And this is one of the things that, that was kind of um, confusing to me at first until I did a little more research. The wallet and the address are, are not the same thing. So you, you can have a wallet with um, a quasi-infinite number of addresses. So if I'm a merchant online, I have, I have my Bitcoin wallet ID. And then for every single transaction, every shopping cart, I can create a brand new address so that when you are buying, I don't know, buying a hamburger online for, because I don't have a better example off the top of my head, I invent a brand new bit, bit, uh, Bitcoin address attached to my wallet. And then when you pay online, I can see that when the payment comes into that address, okay, that transaction, that order is complete. Um, that's, that's the online example. Uh, in person, there are similar but different ways to do this that involve using a Bitcoin and scanning a code of some kind. But the point is that Again, you're, you're transmitting Bitcoin electronically, and a, a wallet can contain many addresses. So it, this is something where, you know, how do you identify a particular person? Um, it can be done. Um, one, of the, one of the videos or podcasts I was listening to about, about Bitcoin uh, was quoting a federal prosecutor talking about the, the blockchain saying it's like prosecution futures. Even though it's not immediately obvious who everybody is on the, on the Bitcoin chain, you can figure it out with certain amounts of data. So for example, you could go to, um, you could go to someplace like Coinbase and say, I want to see the wallet information for Ann Barnhart, if you had an account there. And from that, we can now see all the addresses that are associated to you and then see on the blockchain, who's done business with, with these addresses and then keep spidering out from there. And, mm. and this kind of research has been, has been done and resulted in prosecutions. In fact, it's resulted in the prosecution, arrest and prosecution of, of some allegedly perfect crimes. There was a website not that long ago called Silk Road. And among other things, you could buy a kilogram of hashish or any other kinds of drugs or weapons or any kinds of illegal things uh, were capable of being purchased on Silk Road. And all the transactions were conducted in Bitcoin. Well, during the... Uh, DEA's investigation of, of this process, somebody uh, uh, under the moniker French Maid was selling information about the government's prosecution to the guy who was running Silk Road. Also along the line, another character, I couldn't remember his code name, was extorting the, the guy who ran uh, Silk Road. Between the two of these characters, ended up extorting $25 million worth of Bitcoin from this person. It turns out, those two characters were one of the lead DEA agents doing the investigation. <laughs> and that money was laundered, but with the help of a Secret Service agent who was also part of the investigation. And what ended up exonerating for at least that part of, of the, of, of the uh, criminal activity, the founder of Silk Road, because all the transactions came from his account, what exonerated him is that the transactions took place after his computers had been confiscated. And that could be, <laughs> proven, that could be proven on the, on the blockchain. And mm -hmm. this could be proven in spite of the fact 
that the DEA agent, using his federal agent authority, approached a couple Bitcoin exchanges and told them to erase the records of certain transactions. Okay, so he managed to do that at a couple of exchanges, but you can't erase transactions from the global blo global blockchain. And that's what mm -hmm. nailed this guy to the wall. He's now in federal, federal prison and probably will be for life because the immutability of the records on the blockchain. Hmm. So we've talked about a lot of the attributes of Bitcoin. Let's specifically talk about what's good about Bitcoin. And some of this is, is review. Um, it's an internet native digital currency, which uh, fits a lot of the attributes of, of a currency. It's divisible. I don't think I mentioned this before, but part of the protocol is that each Bitcoin can be divided into 100 million uh, Bitcoin. So right now, one US dollar would buy you 27.9 thousand Satoshi, which is the smallest unit of value in a Bitcoin. And that's why I referred to this as Satoshi Saturday at the top of the show. Ah, okay, very good, very good. Scarce. Uh, we mentioned this before. It, only 21 million Bitcoins will ever exist. Uh, that's equivalent to 2.1 quadrillion Satoshi. Um, but the point is that uh, the rate of growth is limited, and you can't just make new ones out of thin air. These are easily transferable. They are transferably as easy as somebody in Albania can send an email to somebody in Zimbabwe. It, it's an electronic transfer, and the, the way in which you would actually transfer from this mythical A to Z, literally, uh, example, somebody in, Al in Albania would send a computer message that I am sending 2.5 bitcoins to my cousin in Zimbabwe at this address, and it's done. Uh, transferable, okay, I just mentioned that. Portable, got internet, you got, you got portability. Durable. Okay, we mentioned the blockchain, that the records of transactions on the blockchain are mathematically, it's its highly improbable that that can never be changed. So if, if there are Bitcoin assigned to an address, it's its uh, its definitely going to be durable. Recognizability is a slight, uh, it, that's up for debate. Uh, right now, the babysitters that, that uh, watch my kids don't take Bitcoin, so they don't recognize it. But uh, somebody, if you go to a coffee shop in Palo Alto, yeah, you could probably buy coffee with Bitcoin. Okay, so what's bad about Bitcoin? Now, like we've mentioned a few times, you have to have electricity, a computer, and internet. If you live in the United States, uh, it's probably hard to imagine a world without electricity and internet, but, and, and if we ever had that situation where internet and electricity dropped out, I don't think access to the Bitcoin ledger will be our biggest concern. I think it's going to be the breakdown in society that will result. Um, I mentioned that um, if most of the, the Bitcoin ledger was wiped out, it could still be re reconstituted. That's not really a bad thing, but the, the point is you could have a situation where uh, enough of the blockchains are, are down for, lo for long enough that you know an, an evil genius could go and, and edit the blockchain and then, and then when everything comes back online, say, hey, I've got the authoritative copy and you know, he just gave himself 100,000 Bitcoin. And how do you prove otherwise? The biggest problem with Bitcoin is volatility. I mentioned that the my notes when I was writing this yesterday, $3,800 for Bitcoin, or $3,600 for Bitcoin, it's right now $3,800 for Bitcoin. A, wow. month, a month ago, it was $1,000 less. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that, for that massive volatility and jump this month, is that there was, um, there was a fork of, of Bitcoin that happened at the beginning of August. And a fork is uh, taking a copy of the source code that, that makes Bitcoin work, making alterations to it, and then publishing it as a competing standard. So there was something called Bitcoin Cash, which was a, a fork of Bitcoin, and they're proposing themselves as a better answer for the future. And there was a lot of uncertainty on what was going to happen to Bitcoin, so a lot of people weren't buying Bitcoin. Once the four or five days of August roll around and, and Bitcoin hasn't crashed as a currency, then a lot of people who've been holding out and waiting decided now's the time to jump in. And you know, that, that gets into people on CNBC referring to Bitcoin as an asset class as opposed to a currency. 
uh, which gets, only adds more fuel to the people at the SEC who say that, that this is an asset, not a currency. So if you buy Bitcoin at six cents per Bitcoin back in 2011, and now you sell it at $3,800, you owe capital gains. So is it a currency? <laughs> the SEC is saying no at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, the, there's a big network effect to this. There's a bandwagon effect. Um, there, there's accusations that this is really a Ponzi scheme because the, the nerds who got into it at the beginning bought it at you know a dollar a Bitcoin, and now it's a whole lot more. I mentioned the transaction volume. Uh, meaningful e-commerce cannot happen with Bitcoin because it bogs down after six, let's be generous and say 10 transactions per second. That's uh-huh. pretty much nothing in terms of, of modern commerce. Unless you're doing uh, multi-trillion dollar clearances between central banks, six to 10 transactions a second is not enough. I mentioned that Bitcoin is software and so software can be modified and those modifications can be competing, they can be confusing and that could erode trust. And without trust, a currency is probably worthless. Um, mentioned the blockchain. Uh, it's a gigantic distributed database. Right now it's 124 gigabytes, 134, sorry, as of six o'clock last night. Um, as, as cryptocurrencies, as Bitcoin gets more popular, this could be 200 gigabytes. It do, it's just gonna keep growing. The average hard drive for most consumer computers now is 256 or 250 gigabytes. What happens when the blockchain is bigger than the average person's hard drive? The number of full nodes goes down. The number of nodes goes down, the ability for a 51% attack goes up. So yes, you're going to have compute clusters at that point, but it's going to be for long just to be able to keep track of the ledger is going to require enterprise grade hardware that have multi-terabyte storage, massive compute capability. And the, the more that becomes a reality, uh, the more likely it is that somebody can corner the market on the, on being able to control the ledger going forward, which erodes trust. And that's a problem for Bitcoin. So wait, just to make sure I understand this, every person who has Bitcoin has the entire, for lack of a better word, economic or transactional history of the entire planet all the time. Is you, that is that right? You either have a, a wallet, which has the full ledger, like I've got running on my machine behind me, or you have an account with an online service like Coinbase or any of the other uh, type exchanges, and they would have the entire ledger at that point. As the, wow. as the ledger gets so big that it's impractical to store on your home computer... The power to control the future of, of Bitcoin definitely swings to online services and large institutions that have the, the ability, either for good or for evil, to throw the compute resources at controlling the, the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So that's that's definitely a problem, in my opinion. Already, yeah. the, already, the amount of computation that goes into calculating a block cycle is so great that there are pools of people who join together, you know, tens of thousands of people put their, their computers into a compute pool to uh, lay down the next page on, on the ledger. And then then the amount of Bitcoin that's assigned to the pool gets divvied out to everybody based on their compute capacity and how much they contributed. So already it's getting to the point where individual people can't really do a lot to affect the ledger and that's only gonna become more so going forward. Hmm. So I wanna get to uh, something that I haven't gotten to yet and this is where I think is the most interesting part of, of Bitcoin going forward. And this gets into digital asset tracking. There's something called, in addition to the actual units of currency, Bitcoin, there's something called colored coins. And these are not, you can't, you can't buy coffee at, in Palo Alto with a colored coin. What a colored coin refers to is a, it's a way of representing um, and managing real world assets on top of the, the Bitcoin blockchain. So I'm creating, uh, and you can, make, you can make colored coins on the fly. There's no limit to how many of these you can make. Uh, why would you do this? Let's say, for example, I want to quantify everything I own and write it to the immutable global blockchain. 
Uh, so I can create a color coin and attach it to my house. I can create one and add it to my car. I could, whatever you can dream up. Uh, it could be votes in an election. And by adding this to the blockchain, you have an immutable record now of, of who's assigned to what. It could be permissions. So for example, on a future version of, of a Tesla car, it may require a particular color coin in order to start the transmission. And you would verify that by having a, an application on your phone that could synchronize with the car and say, yep, I have control of this coin right now. So I could be halfway around the world. And if you come to my garage, I could send you the, the color coin to your phone and you could start my car and drive it. This also enables things like um, car sharing. Uh, for example, you could have a company which owns a fleet of cars and then you want to rent a car for a few hours. Now you, you make your electronic trans, uh, payment for it and you get a color coin that will start a car or unlock a bike or something. So there's a lot of, cap lot of interesting possibilities that come along with this. How about futures contracts? We mentioned uh, in, in a sound check um, talk that we were having a couple of days ago, what if all of the things that are required for derivatives trading had to be recorded on an, on an immutable blockchain where nobody could contradict in the future what happened? Or a blockchain in such a way you could see exactly how many derivatives are outstanding. I think one of the problems right now with the derivatives market is so much of it is done over the counter or off the official ledgers that there's no way of knowing for sure what the true value of all the outstanding contracts are. Right. It wouldn't be very hard to put this on a global distributed transaction or put this on the, on the blockchain. In which case, we could see at a glance, we have, I don't know, $67 quintillion worth of derivatives or whatever is hanging out there over our heads. So at least we'd be able to quantify in a non-forgeable way what's out there. What hmm. this begins to enable is something called smart contracts. And that's going to be beyond the, the time limit for this podcast. And, and Bitcoin, as it is right now, is not very well suited to um, smart contracts. There are other cryptocurrencies, such as Ethereum, which are designed specifically for this. But let's say the purchase of a house. I put all of the assets necessary, the currency, maybe I assigned um, $100,000 of money to a color coin, and I put this into a contract on the blockchain that says when the inspection is completed and any required uh, repairs are made and the, the buyer and seller have agreed that the, the inspection terms are done and the title inspection is done and the verification that high-speed internet at the residence is high enough because if I'm going to buy a house, that's a requirement. I have to have high-speed internet. All the other prerequisites that when all of these are signed off and done as pre-programmed at the beginning of this transaction, the money changes hands. So you mentioned mm. at the top of the show, what was the what was the purpose of, of the, the of the exchange in cattle's futures or in cattle futures? Well, the the idea was to make sure that uh, that there was sufficient trust in the system that that the transaction was backstopped. Well, at the beginning if the assets that would have to trade hands are put into essentially an electronic escrow at this point, they're put onto mm -hmm. the, on the it's, it's already on the blockchain, but you're, you're committing a contract to the blockchain that's saying when these conditions are met, the, the sum or the value or whatever it is, whether it's a color code that represents a, a contract for some other kind of asset, this changes hands. And if it doesn't happen within a certain amount of time or, or it's rescinded it, uh, based on the rules of the contract, that the whole contract is nullified. Hmm. So any any kind of logic that you could program into a in, into a contract could then be on the blockchain, and in my in my opinion, this is this is the much more interesting future of Bitcoin, and it's something where, um, you know, imagining I, we keep coming back to this idea of the U.S. currency. What if what if electricity goes out and the internet goes out and all, and everything else? What if the ledgers are are qu in question? 
Well, if everything is based on smart contracts and everything is recorded, all the ledgers are recorded in a, in a public manner, which they're supposed to be anyway, we have audits for this purpose, then the ability to, to cheat goes down significantly. Well, this gets into a, sep a separate question of, well, if, if Bitcoin and cryptocurrency becomes popular, who stands to lose? There's some pretty powerful people who don't like to lose. So they, they may engage in some shenanigans to make sure this doesn't come to pass. But I mentioned um, digital contracts or smart contracts and uh, the, the cryptocurrency called Ethereum. Chase Manhattan, I believe, is, is um, or is it Chase Manhattan or just Chase Bank? They, they are actively exploring doing smart contracts for futures contracts with this technology now. Uh, you could also set up things like the assignment of your will. I could say in my will, uh, my entire Bitcoin balance gets transferred to my son's account when he reaches the age of 25 years, six months, and four days. And it just happens. Mm -hmm. It's already on mm -hmm. the ledger. It's already essentially an escrow. Unless I rescind it, it's his when that when that time hits. Or I could have something set up that when the Social Security Administration marks my Social Security number as belonging to somebody deceased, then all of my distribu the distribution of all of my assets happens according to my will, which itself could be a smart contract on the web, and everything just happens immediately. So uh, whoever the unknown who, people who didn't even know they were beneficiaries of my will, all of a sudden have money show up. So so who who inputs the data when something happens? You know, if if X happens, then Y. Well, could somebody put a lie in in the blockchain and say that yes x has in fact happened when in fact no it has not happened you see i i don't understand could, what the could somebody hack the social security administration and say that i'm dead but i'm not and all of my assets are gone possibly but you could also so it, it has to be directly tied into the social security social security administration's database then well it it you, you get into the idea of multi-signature authority as well. So in the case of death, you might have, I, I just was, was using the example of the Social Security Administration saying that, that I'm dead. You could also mm -hmm. say that you have to have that and uh, a signed death warrant from a doctor and uh, a third, an interested third party signing off on it. You could, you could have multi-signature authority. Um, this also gets into corporate accounting. So for example, you know, we protect against the controller spending money without permission because any any uh, expenditure over X amount, not just shouldn't be done without uh, dual signature or triple signature authority, cannot be done without dual or tri triple signature authority because this is all built into the smart contracts of the money. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just went over three pages of notes in about five or ten minutes because uh, I, I think if I went in detail and all, all the rest of it, I completely skipped over uh, cryptography, which... It's it's a it's a level of math that is beyond my my ability to truly understand. Even though I can kind of explain it, uh, maybe we can come into this later if if we want to, or if somebody's really interested. I can send some links to explain what public key cryptography is and why it works. But oh, that sounds really interesting. I think we should cover that in a in next week's episode. You know, you can do a little bit more research and formulate how to how you want to uh, explain it. But it sounds fascinating to me. Okay, uh, I can definitely start working on that. Uh, whether it's cool. next week or two weeks from now, um, yeah, we'll, right. we'll wait to be seen. Uh, but more or less, we've, I've, I've covered what Bitcoins are um, and started a much bigger uh, discussion here about smart contracts, which we can dig into in the future. And hopefully, especially for you, Anne, I've, I've whet your appetite in terms of what is possible with either smart contracts or just having a globally distributed, non-editable ledger. Now, mm -hmm. granted, the future of that ledger could be corrupted, but in terms of being able to say with certainty what happened in the past in terms of transactions, what would have happened to MF Global if if John Corzine tried to take customer funds that the customers could come back and say, nope, 
uh, you can't get these because there are funds. And by the way, in Bitcoin, you don't pull currency. You have to push it. So Corzine could not have taken customer funds in this case if they were cryptographically signed in this manner. He could only take uh, the funds that are that he owns or that the company owns at this point. The crash right. of MF Global could not have happened. Interesting. Hmm, much to think about. Much to think about. Um, it, but again, it's. <laughs> I, I just have this fear in the back of my mind that you know we're all so dependent upon electricity, internet now, technology that I, I just have this this nagging feeling that yes, there are aspects of this which I had no idea about and now sound very intriguing and and could be could be very helpful and and a good thing for society. And we're going to get ourselves into this paradigm and then it's just going to to come back and for lack of a better word, bite us all in the butt when we're even more dependent upon all, all of these things with ter in terms of electricity and so forth. It just seems like it's making, it would make us more vulnerable. But on the other hand, I we're guess you can't, there. we're already there, certainly. And you can't go through life, you know, just assuming that there's going to be a nuclear holocaust five minutes from now either. Um, oh, I, I, forgot so, to, I forgot to have this reference ready, but it, it's it's my biblical proof that the internet will last until the end of time. There's there's What's a re that? there's a reference in the Apocalypse or Revelations if that's how you pronounce that book um, mm -hmm. that when the 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 two prophets of Christ uh, Elias and Enoch uh, when when they are finally put to death by the Antichrist there's going to be instant global rejoicing. How is that possible? Interesting, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it will be uh, it will be beamed across the internet. Very it, it good. Could be, it could Very be internet, good. It could be, you know, early 80s. This would have been possible with satellite television. But the, but the idea being that that um, near instantaneous or instantaneous global communication is going to be with us, at least at the end of time, whether or not it remains uh, continuous, a continuous ability until then is another question. But ah. uh, it's it's definitely when, when you look at, at the way that's written and how is the whole world going to know about the death of these two? Um, right. That, that's that's not a stretch to say it's the internet or something like that which is going to enable it. I, I can see a situation where when that happens, every single smart device on the world gets a push notification. Hey, Elias and Enoch are finally dead. Let's celebrate. Right. And it's just exactly. like drinks on the house at that point. Indeed. Interesting. Oh, very good, super nerd. Of course, I would bring something nerdy into the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, is this is this kind of a breaking point? Can we call this uh, episode one of the great Bitcoin discourse? I would call it the cryptocurrency discussion. Um, okay. I, I think so. And 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 um, I I knew that I wasn't going to make you a believer on on switching everything over to this. But I but my adjusted goal of making you highly interested in the capabilities and aspects of the technology and the way it could be used for good. And even if we switched over to it, whether it was Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else, which is based on a crypto a public cryptographic database or ledger, if all of our transactions were, were that way now, even if we had that massive outage of communications capability and electricity, when everything came back up, we could have certainty where we left off. As opposed to now, we wouldn't necessarily have that certainty. So right. that, 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 is, that is at least one highly beneficial aspect of cryptocurrencies that I think we're going to be seeing uh, come online in the future. Uh, and that's why you have the the Wall Street banks looking at this because it could keep their it could keep them out of jail. To be honest, I mean, if there's if there's an unimpeachable record of what really happened, then uh, he said she said uh, dispute of something going on, that goes out the window. We say we don't care what you said or what the allegations are. Let's go back and look at the actual record. Nope, what you're accusing well, didn't but, take place. 
But then again, you know, going back to Corzine and all the rest of them, I think their ability right now, the way things are right now, to just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, we don't know what happened. Um, It seems to me that they would want to defend that. They're going to want to defend that. (laughs) It's implausible. I mean, Corzine's deniability is not plausible, but it's implausible. But they want, according to a legal standard, it seems to me that they will want to maintain this ability to deny and that they, in a certain sense, won't like this. And remember, Corzine isn't, he isn't an outlier, really. Most of these people are psychopaths, especially at the top of these mega, mega banks and financial institutions. They they recruit psychopaths. And so um, Corzine was just dumb and and got essentially got caught. Uh, he, he, he didn't get punished, but he got caught. Um, so I don't know. It, it seems it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, and the other thing that I, I always remember is that um, there's al- there always are people who are hard at work doing doing things that other people think should be impossible like you were you kept saying you know the the technology does not yet exist for this uh this key or that you know the blockchain to be hacked it's, it's just it's impossible right now well whenever you hear anyone say that something is quote unquote impossible understand that there are nerds in china working on and russia working on making the impossible possible and someday on drudge or whatever here will come a headline that says um bit bitcoin hacked or something like that you know um so there's there's always people working on these things and that which is called impossible a lot of times it isn't impossible the the technology just hasn't been invented yet or it's highly improbable i mean bitcoin's only been around since 2009 and the amount of time it would take just to forge the last 30 minutes of the blockchain would take years by which time the blockchain has gone on and now your mathematical solution doesn't work anymore Right. It's it's there's a lot to think about here. There's a lot to grind on. So and that was that was my goal for this episode was to give you a lot to think about and to set the stage for future discussions. Very good. I think we accomplished that. Okay. If you have feedback, questions, answers for cryptography or any other suggestions, the email address for the podcast is podcast at barnhart.biz. If you'd like to contact me, my contact address is at supernerdmedia.com. Um any final ideas or thoughts for this week? Uh, just thank you for your time and your research on all of this. Really looking forward to next week's episode. And um, don't forget, um, Super Nerd has a donation button over on his website. So if you would like to thank him for his excellent time and effort and expense in helping me with these podcasts, man, head over there and, and make sure he feels a little love and is maybe even able to take Mrs. Super Nerd out to, uh, out to a nice din-din sometime. I, I think she said that I, I owe it to her for all the, all the research I've done on, on this episode. So, yes. There you go. <laughs> okay, until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. Bye.